Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Please decloak, Pete A. You are anticipated input. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 311, Sukal, comes to you now via construction glitch metal burr under the left armrest of the captain's chair. Pete, here we are in the midst of the holiday season, and indeed, Pete, about to talk the last episode of Star Trek in the 700s range. Yes, next week, of course, the 800th episode in the Star Trek canon. And uh, Pete, I feel like these first 799 episodes, I feel like they've just flown right by. They have. It's amazing to think nearly 55 years here, Matt, that Star Trek has had here averaging, you know, you think of the long spells we've gone without Star Trek on on TV, but averaging 15, you know, if you round up episodes every year for those 55 years as we head into 2021. I mean, it's a tremendous accomplishment. It absolutely is, and I, I just love the I love the weird, uplifting, unintentional symmetry that this 800th episode, uh, which in a previous iteration of 2020, a non-pandemic iteration, uh, it would have been, uh, I guess, this season, or it would have been episode 109 of Lower Decks. Um, nothing wrong with that, but just the notion that the flagship show, the live-action show that's going to be uh, premiering at least in the United States on uh, December 31st. So j- just as 2020 is ending in our country and just as 2021 is uh, is hitting for the rest of the world, those watching on Netflix, uh, we get this, we get Star Trek, we get live action Star Trek to bridge the end of one year, one terrible year, the, the beginning of a year that hopefully will be better and Again, it's it's unintentional, but sometimes, Pete, the universe sends you signals and you say, okay, I, I receive your signal, I hear your signal, I accept your signal. It's as it should be. With that, Pete, let's head into the mission briefing. After a nearly two-minute previously on segment, the camera pushes into Discovery's mess hall where the last episode has just ended and Adira feels disconnected from the crew at Georgiou's memorial service. Stamets reminds them that they have uh, the crew, and uh, Stamets and Culber in particular, to lean on. But then Gray reappears. Indeed, Gray is sorry uh, and just hasn't known how to be in this shared existence uh and he says that he's supposed to be connected and seen and of course can't live like that with that pete we are told uh that on the kiev the kelpian ship that we found in dialogue that was added because i think someone was concerned that we would forget after three episodes the kiev was a kelpian ship so off-screen dialogue was added but on that ship there's a life sign Remember all that radiation? Remember the marks that we saw on Dr. Issa's head? No, no, Seru decides to share now in a more expedient moment in this episode. 
Those marks are actually proof that the good doctor was pregnant. Time to head to that ship pronto. And they do. But there's a nasty storm in the way, you know, storm in the nebula type thing. Uh, and Detmer takes them in. Um, again, we kind of have a voiceover. Shields up, red alert. Um, I, I'm, I'm not being grossly critical of this episode, Pete, but I think that we can see some spots where dialogue was added to tighten things up and maybe added in post-production. The ship's rocking, the ship's rolling, the shields are, are, are ground into very quickly. Still, Saru is keeping the course. Pete, I wondered in some of the shots here of Burnham, wondering if Saru is keeping the course for the right reasons. Was she thinking about just grabbing a phaser pistol like she did <laughs> with Giorgio? Uh, Book ultimately pitches taking his ship into the nebula instead. Uh, Disco sends it in and then Disco jumps out back to safety. Yeah, and inside, Book is quickly overcome by radiation breach. His nose starts bleeding, uh, but he's located a pocket for Discovery to jump into, as well as uh, found the life sign. Uh, so the autopilot brings him back. He's going to get here here again with your, your narration, the... Um, the discussion of how he'll get fixed up with some DNA recombination. Uh, and Tilly explains that the data from the Kiev uh, is that it crashed into a planet with a massive supply of dilithium and Burnham believes that they have found the source of the burn as we head to the title card. A planet I would like to call Planet Dilithium. Uh, in the credits, we see that the episode is written by Anne Kofel Saunders and directed by Trek newcomer Norma Bailey. After the credits, Admiral Vance is happy to hear about Planet Dilithium. And uh, Saru updates him that inside, uh, the craft, inside of the crashed ship, everything is safe enough to handle an away team with Saru leading the charge. Tilly given command in his absence. Uh, Saru also notes that if there were somehow to be another burn, you know, if it's related to where they're headed to, distance, of course, would not make a difference. Uh, but Vance asks, uh, is this person connected to the burn? Nah, no way, they say. Perhaps aware that they're at the beginning of a narrative arc. Uh, by the way, the Emerald Chain is peacocking near Kaminar. Seems like Osira wants you, Saru. With that, Pete, we head to sickbay. See, book is fine. No problemo. Yes, as is Grudge, although uh, has a paw that needs to be checked out, was favoring here. Uh, Burnham updates book on his ship. The dots droids are checking it out, working on it. Okay, and all that dilithium of planet dilithium is a game changer amongst these former couriers here. Uh, Burnham is going down with Saru and Culber. She's concerned about his objectivity with another member of his species here. That brings us to uh, Stamets telling Culber he can't go because he has him and he has Adira, but Culber feels very differently, particularly with what he's gone through, his resurrection. Any survivor would have been alone 
on the Kiev for decades, and Kolber could help too, but it's okay. We'll keep comms open that in no way will ever fail through this radiation storm. In Pete, I shall say, the quarters in which Burnham is occupying, I know that there's been debate as to whether she still shares them with Tilly or not, but I'm just saying in the quarters in which Burnham is occupying, Burnham gives number one tips to Tilly. You know, Pete, because Burnham was such a, a memorable historic number one, uh, she tells the tale of the metal burr, all the ships lately, or at least lately relative to the construction date, uh, have this metal burr in the chair. Uh, good Giorgio would indeed uh, press it from time to time in order to bring focus into the moment. Rubbed that burr into a dent. Uh, burr, dent, shiny spot. It's a reminder that you can do it. With that, it is go time. Disco jumps to the planet. Shields dropping quickly. Drained ever so fast. Culber reacts there and now, saying that they have four hours with the meds that they just took off screen. I get it, Pete. They need to communicate things to the audience. I'm just lightly saying I don't know that Culver would give that status update at that exact moment when there is a ticking time clock. Um, we're told, however, that shield repair will take three hours. So there's your double, your, your dueling story clocks, if you will. Saru gives Tilly the con and beams away. Tilly eyes the chair with everyone dramatically watching her. Uh, Tilly sits down and feels that perhaps hastily added Burr, uh, and calls confidently, Pete, deservedly confidently, uh, Black Alert uh, as, uh, as the story continues on the planet. Burnham beams into a snowy nighttime landscape wearing a red hood, so she's like a, a little red riding hood. Um, and we see, particularly on rewatch, the, the trill spots, Colber beams in uh, wearing a white uh, parka. He's got Bajoran ridges. And then Saru, Matt, and this was a, a, a highlight in particular in an episode in which Doug Jones gets a lot. But to have him appear as human, his, his heels touch the ground, uh, his wide-eyed gaze and amazement I mean, as I tweeted, uh, Doug Jones is the gift I might be the most grateful for in Star Trek right now. I I would add to that. I suspect that he made a conscious choice in this first scene, whether it was first filmed or not. I, I don't know. But I think that he made a conscious choice to be doing some of his Doug Jones pushes through the Saru makeup to make Saru faces. I think he does a little bit of that to get a more Saru-like look in the beginning, mm -hmm. um, which must have been a whole, you know, he's obviously the master of the prosthetic mask here. So it must, have, it must have been this whole decision. How do I still act through the rubber? But there is no rubber, so I need to tone it back. But I want to hit kind of, I want to look like Saru, even though now I look like Doug Jones. That whole, he's I think still that whole, in a prosthetic though. Uh, Pete, do you refer to his hair, perhaps? Yes, yes, because he completely shaves down to... This is a guy who changes his physical appearance so that he can change his physical appearance. Um, yeah, must have been <laughs> must have been an interesting irony that here he 
shaves his head in order to make his on-screen time easier and now he has to wear a wig because he shaved his head etc etc but bottom line what's happening uh they intuit that they must be on the ship not the planet proper um i know the ship is on the planet but you know this is how they're they're geographically differentiating here the planet would kill them awful quick on account of the radiation and such uh wait they have no computer communicators no supplies no extra radiation meds tick tock again goes the story clock uh saru tries to end the program with no luck um it is highlighted that they have four hours until discovery's return uh with that they hear some voices they first come across the your replicator and you a training program program uh and the crew is itself our crew is read as parts of the program uh it's revealed that the program is glitchy you know the radiation with that pete take us to uh the room of stairs and the giant flowers from picard uh you know pete i had not noticed them but there you go eagle-eyed pete swooping on in again the orchids uh seen in the two-part finale there for season one interesting repurpose here i mean it it works there's vaguely threatening swirling thing in the atmosphere but uh this ancient uh stepwell recreation uh their clothing has changed inside uh continue to seek out the life form here there's a gigantic chained door there are seemingly ritual-esque pillars it all seems vaguely familiar to saru um and then they see a kelpian who says that they don't belong there uh they introduce themselves um and uh that they are responding to his mother's call uh because they're from the outside the outside they woke the monster matt and he flees burnham notes that the door was unlocked from the outside when he became scared um and that everything here has been programmed to deal with and help the child uh he is fragile they should treat this as a first contact burnham is going to stay and make sure the monster stays at bay so to recap here pete this this kelpian man as of yet unnamed asking what program is this where are you from perhaps pete he's saying what kind of star trek is this uh he doesn't know the difference between the real world and the show the program believes these hollow stories to be real and can't handle changes interesting stuff on discovery there are basement like environment indeed uh on discovery there are repairs underway uh, and they boost comms to hear burnham's staticky update but discovery can't do anything shields are at 40 percent uh and further countdown because of course pete we have the shield countdown we have the radiation countdown uh there's now a federation ship making its way there they're hailed but no answer uh it's got the correct response codes this is something kind of weird uh they're 10 minutes out so i mean pete one truly needs a a computer uh device you know one of your one of your you know your phone or your speaker devices to keep track of so many timers here but back in the program um we're told that we're now seeing the day kaminar was let into the federation um i guess they infer that 
Um, oh, we we well, it's, can... it's told the Kelpian Baul Alliance. Uh, fair enough. Then, uh, bottom line, uh, the Vulcan Hollow sees our crew as rescuers. Correct. Uh, these Hollows have kept the the man alive. The appearance of the rescuers have been changed to prevent the child from being scared by these the the appearance of these new Star Trekkers. But Pete, this whole time it's been uh, Culver and Saru. Where's Burnham? Burnham sees the monster, Matt. Initially, I was confused because the monster looks an awful lot like the Baul, uh, but it's not. We'll find out in a little bit. This is a separate Kaminar-esque uh, creature. Is uh, it possible, Pete, that the fairy tale that we will hear about in a little bit pulls from Baul fact? I, I think a little. I mean, they're they're so similar. The the black swirling CGI creations. Um, you know, th- this is different, and you're you're noting the difference. But I was like, as I'm watching it the first time, trying to put this together, and and I don't know how much of that was. Okay, they they know the story coming in of of the Baul, and we've just name checked the Baul, and a little bit we'll get an illustration of them and and what's going on. Uh, but what we ultimately uh, understand later, some kind of kelp monster uh, from a from a fable. Uh, Burnham uh, grabs a rock, but that only uh, angers it. It gives chase, and then. She falls into the sky in this hollow program before we go to the sky, Matt, and Discovery. Indeed. Thinking caps on, why didn't they notice this incoming Federation ship initially? Hey, are there any Class M planets in this neighborhood? No. Hmm. So strange. Owo's asked to scan not the ship, but around the ship. And from the information uh, therein derived, Tilly intuits that this is not a Federation ship. It's Gasp Osira, who then shows up, shields up red alert. Um, Pete, can I just throw out here that maybe when there were these initial concerns, they should have gone to yellow alert, which probably would have carried with it shields up already. But hey, um, book tells us... That's dramatic, Matt. That is true. Um book tells us that she must have gotten here by way of a local transwarp conduit uh and with that pete the uss discovery ncc 1031-a cloaks as one you know does that was super out of left field i i agree as well i remember watching this thursday morning and being like they didn't tell us about this in the least and the controversy in points towards the latter stages of the Star Trek timeline that had been previously established of, okay, the Defiant has a cloak because rules of war and very specific rules about using it. And now free for all, hey, when we refit you, see this button? That's the cloak button. As happens from time to time, I suppose. Uh, Back to the planet we go. Burnham has landed up. And uh, Pete, can we call him Sukal? I mean, he hasn't been properly named yet. But the the mysterious uh, Kelpian uh, 
I suppose the two are interchangeable. Bottom line, he has found her. Uh, he asks, you're a program, right? Which one are you? He's glad to find something new in this Star Trek program. Burnham tells him that she's there to teach social interaction. He asks about uh, Saru, not by name, but, you know, the Doug Jones-looking guy. Uh, Saru had mentioned the outside. Outside never came. It's probably dead now. Burnham uh, will tell the tale of the outside. Plays kind of coy about being a program. Hey, let's talk about social units. Saru and Culber find a Kelpian elder here. Saru explains the tradition was that they would tell stories, preserve their history, but they never got that old, obviously because of the Baharai and the culling that took place. So Culber acknowledges for Saru, this is the oldest Kelpian he's ever seen. And the, the makeup job, I mean, the, the whiskers and the aging of the makeup we're used to seeing with Kelpians is uh, phenomenally done here. Um, there are illustrations in a story book and around the room, uh, a, a smaller Kelpian. This, of course, the uh, now named Sukal. Uh, it means beloved gift um, that after a uh, period of great tragedy, the next child born to a family would be named that and that that child would symbolize the end of suffering. The program here teaches history and tradition, also provides emotional support, much like uh, the Burnham program was looking to do. So really kind of double duty here. Of course, it was the mother, Dr. Isa, who had created this because all the Kelpian knew that they were dying. But back to Burnham, Matt, and warm memories of Kaminar's harvest, uh, harvesting of kelp. Yes, he, Sukal, liked that feeling of the water, those memories of uh, kelp harvesting, uh, other family things. Um, but does he remember things before the harvesting environment here rendered in the holographic environment? Uh, he doesn't want to talk about that. He wants the program to reset to the kind of storytelling he wants. Uh, but is there an exit to this program? No, no, no. He doesn't want that. He runs off while Burnham notes on her hand some radiation damage. Cut to Culber noting on his hand some radiation damage. See what they did there. Uh, while Saru continues to hear oldie time stories, including how the child hides in his fortress. The elder shares his book, Sings a Lullaby. This reminds Saru of his time on Kaminar. Cut to previous footage of Saru on Kaminar. But look, those rock piles are actually totems. They protect Sukal against the kelp monster, which symbolizes his fears. Uh, and his fear keeps him locked in here, says old timey man providing perhaps for next week a way out the baul are illustrated in the storybook um as the all-seeing eye too has changed has become protection um and it's this kelp monster that would rise from the sea to remind children to face their fears much like saru has done and that locked door represents but as long as he doesn't face them he will remain there uh this 
fortress bat, perhaps some sort of the citadel, uh, suddenly now appears and there's a path that is uh, building towards it as uh, Culber and Saru noticed the damage to themselves. But back to Discovery, we go where it's a stalemate between the cloaked ships. Uh, indeed, they wonder why Osira hasn't fired on them. Book ponders the idea that perhaps Osira wants the whole ship. Uh, Osira, with that, phones in and asks for the captain. Where is the captain? Um, uh, Tilly gets laughed at. Uh, after all, says Osira, Tilly's everyone's friend and a team player, but also a fraud. Uh, Pete, from fraud to Freud, Tilly gamely calls it projection <laughs> because Osira must feel the same way. Freud is galactic. Uh, and Osira reveals that she wants the ship, the spore drive, and the crew as leverage, and she is told no. With that, Pete, let's go back to Sukal's Fortress of Solitude, perhaps, <laughs> huh? huh? Continues to work on the totems there on a, on a stairwell as Burnham glimpses him and also the the swirly monster kept at bay. Uh, Burnham now has visible wounds to her face and Culber and uh, Saru join her to witness what the child is a-doing. Yes, and uh, as that monster approaches, Sukal says no, and we see it emanate from his, his mouth and around him causing ultimately a mini burn on discovery. They kind of, they see it coming. They're able to deal with it. Stamets is rooting the this and the that and the other around it. The dilithium is so unstable. Cloak is down and they can't jump. Prepare for the firefight. Stamets is told to get into the spore cube. And Pete, he tells his captain no and needs to be told a couple of times. Um, uh, we might have some concerns about Tilly being prepared to be a uh, temporary captain, but she is. Shame on you, Stamets. Um, Book is sent to his ship to rescue. Um, mixed in with all of this, Adira kind of on the side has an idea. They share with Reno, saying that they need Reno's badge. Back we go on to the planet. Saru comes to call by singing that lullaby. Uh, a story from the man-child's youth, if you will, something Sukal prefers. The monster runs off, and separately, Sukal walks away. The decision here to use Doug Jones and his singing, and just side note, if if you don't check out his his Christmas Carol videos on social media, you're really missing out. Um, but lovely inclusion here in an episode. You know, Doug Jones gets showcased as Saru, but Doug Jones to get showcased as Doug Jones Saru uh, is a rare treat and uh, really leans in in terms of this narrative, uh, you know, calming the child. And, and Matt, what, what do you know? Uh, a child abandoned uh who has an emotional reaction and sends some kind of force out into the cosmos uh many things are galactic pete many things back we go Sukal, to call backwards lucas i mean oh. really wow i hadn't quite thought of this directly as that but uh 
but huh. Uh, on Discovery, they're being hailed, and there's witty repartee between the two captains. Tilly ultimately promises to self-destruct Discovery if the ship is taken. Osira intuits that Disco must be protecting someone in the nebula. Book uh, does launch, and Tilly calls Black Alert, but baddies beam into the spore cube, uh, preventing uh, Stamets from doing the, the jumpy thing. Tentacles with that move from Osiris ship to Discovery, snaring it. More baddies appear in the corridors. We see Book going into the nebula and sharing with Burnham that Sukal uh, almost caused another burn. Uh, and Burnham and Culber realize that uh, he somehow has adapted to the area and caused the original burn. Burnham and everybody get to the rendezvous point. Yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces in this point of the episode. This one's going to stay here, but no, this is instead going to happen. And yeah, uh, and side note, I guess Osiris' ship got the tentacles from... Uh, from um, the Romulan ship that went to the Kelvin universe. There is a lot of tech mixed in there. Um, back on the planet, our heroes discuss who will stay. Someone needs to prevent another burn. Saru will stay by himself. No, no, Colber will too. After all, remember that thing Colber said in the beginning? He's going to say it again now. He knows what it's like to be alone. Uh, Burnham's going to come back for them, but is reminded that uh, if it takes more than one day, it's no dice. The radiation will get them. On Bookship, Adira has snuck on. They've got radiation medicine and transport down. Um, we see that uh, at, just after Adira transports down, Burnham is transported up. She's radioactive. You can tell, Pete, because her Apple Watch radiation death edition is blinking red. <laughs> uh, and it's time to fly away. Uh, Pete, why don't you take us for the last bit of the episode here? Stamets, king that he already is, Matt, gets fitted for a crown here, but not the type that he wants to wear. This is going to turn him into a spore cube zombie for Osira's bidding. Uh, so with that, he's made to... Uh, take the old uh, controls there. Suddenly the bridge is overrun as well. Osira even coming over in her uh, black leather outfits. Uh, the crew is uh, liberated of their badges here. And Tilly is essentially tossed out of the chair. Uh, Osira having taken control of discovery really getting herself comfortable in that chair. I doubt she knows where the metal burr is because uh, she's got her, her leg up on it. And just as Book and Burnham come out of the nebula, they find that Discovery is gone with the ship here. And what are they going to do? With our incoming threat analysis, Pete, I think it, it, clearly this threat analysis shows it is a Federation ship. Wait a minute, Pete, it's Osira. <laughs> and uh, with Osira here getting featured as much as she has in an episode 
looming as a threat, but growing larger now, taking uh, Discovery hostage. Um, could we have done with a little bit more buildup? Perhaps, but we've gotten the previous motivation. Okay, she's bad. She needs dilithium. We really did a little too much of putting the connection together for her rather than her figuring out, oh, spore drive. Uh, so she wants dilithium. She wants discovery because of its unique spore drive. She can go anywhere. Clearly, she's mounting uh, a campaign against the Federation that she's gone to planets of uh, crew members to try to draw them out. Um, so she's, she's an appropriate villain at this point. I, I just wish we'd done a little bit. She does fine in this episode as a threat. I, I feel like we could have done a little bit more building up of her prior. Well, Pete, though there's only one main baddie in this episode this week, our Star Trek adventures every week made possible by those who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. It takes just a dollar to get you behind that door. Sometimes it's stuff that's there forever that no one else can get. Sometimes it's stuff you get to hear a little bit early. Uh, an example being our, uh, Lego Star Wars holiday special that we just made available for everybody after an exclusive window on Patreon since that came out in uh, mid-November. But you place the value on the podcast. And again, we thank you at this time of year when the bills come due and you help us from having our own uh, sea monsters show up and uh, terrify us. With that, Pete, let's set our long-range sensors towards some theories. First one, just want to get it out of the way, Pete. I saw some people online concerned that uh, that Sukal, as the person who likes his program a certain way and don't change his stories, you Star Trek Discovery people, may be an interpretation that, that, that Sukal is representing a certain element of fandom. I mean... The metaphor here, I think we have to be careful in, in parsing um, that you have this child who is abandoned and, and not out of an intentional decision, but orphaned because of tragedy. And to grow up with this environment meant to protect, meant to inform and uh, sustain and for others to come in that he's not comfortable with that he needs to learn about and gain familiarity with i i think it's kind of a, a classic star trek story we we find these alien worlds where people uh don't have the level of insight that they gain from others and they come away changed pete changing subjects here 
we get gray expressing his desire to be connected and interacting mm-hmm. uh will gray return either this season or next in corporeal form i've i've been on this one since the start it, it just remains to be seen how exactly that's going to take place whether it'll be a programmable matter situation. I mean, we've, we've done this with Culber and to the benefit of the show. I can, can you even imagine Star Trek discovery without Wilson Cruz at this point? Uh, I mean, it certainly is. It's difficult to imagine and or at least for Culber. And then it's interesting to ponder knowing that the gray will be back in some capacity for season four. Uh, certainly Pete, the, the, the dire nature in which this episode ends, um, you know, the uh, bookship out there by itself in the uh, great the beyond Eagle, Matt, let's call it by its given name. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. Will book use the conveniently mentioned nearby transwarp conduit to get to Federation HQ ASAP. You mean the one that is on the courier maps that you'd have to be crazy to even attempt to navigate like Osira did, right? That one? That very same one. Will we see <laughs> no it in the first two minutes? No one in their right mind, unless there was a cliffhanger, would even go into that. They call it the cliffhanger conduit, don't they? Uh, th- th- Pete, they may on some maps. <laughs> uh, last question for me. Will... Planet Dilithium minus Sukal, you know, once that gets sorted out, presumably next week, will that be a galactic fix? Uh, because all they just need is more Dilithium and they don't need anything sustainable. Yeah, that's where I... Is it a finger wag? I don't know. The whole thing with Dilithium was there was this burn. It got burned up. There's not a lot of it left. It's a it's a resource. However, we know it's unstable that it can cause these types of things. So that you find a planet nearly composed entirely of it when you have the spore drive and you've been looking for alternative sources of propulsion, it feels like a step backwards. And I'm sure what's coming is the course correction of, well, no, we can't use this because we become over-dependent on it. Um, It's clear they're not going to do the, and the entire fleet has the schematics to the spore drive and now has one because programmable matter this season until maybe like the coda (laughs) of, you know, solving this crisis with the Emerald chain and and the siege on the Federation apart from its scattered nature right now. Um, But yeah, I'm, I'm super concerned about the dependency on it. And then you add the fuse of Sukal in terms of, that explosive fuel does not feel like a, like a good fix. You mentioned the, um, the immediate threat of the Emerald chain. I know we had discussed an episode or two ago, kind of in terms of number of episodes left in the season is the threat up to the task. Uh, I feel like insofar as this week, it obviously was the return of the Emerald chain. And now there's this really, really dire situation 
now I feel like with two episodes remaining to the season, I feel like, oh man, it's going to be two jam-packed episodes and the, the, the threat equals the number of episodes left kind of thing. So I'm feeling much, much better than I was maybe yeah. two episodes ago, just in terms of, you know, are, are, are things tight enough? Does it go too fast? Does it, is it a little bit too loose? And now feels just, just about right. I didn't feel like a kidnapping situation was in the offing. I felt more of like discovery is in danger because they want the tech. They'll take the tech taking the, the ship and the crew makes the stakes appropriate here. And, you know, if you watch the previews, like normal people do not name Matt Lafferty, uh, you know, <laughs> where discovery was headed. So, yeah, I, I feel like with these two episodes left, we, we look at what story space remains to be settled. And then, you know, with the knowledge that the fourth season will continue in this timeline, um, you know, does the Emerald Chain get dealt with once and for all? Or is this something that, continues to sprawl into the next season remains to be seen. Um, I'm still oddly hankering for our, our Klingons, our, our Borg, perhaps, you know, what other species that we're familiar with still pose some kind of threat or are different a la the, the Romulans joining up with the Vulcans on Navarre. Any other theories on your theory radar? The the concept of another burn, like I said, with the with the dilithium planet. So could that be a story solution of well, Osira is overly dependent on dilithium and she's always looking for it. Could could they light the fuse on the bomb to to blow her up? That is an interesting take. I mean, you mentioned earlier, there seems to be the, I think you were saying more story unwillingness. I'll, I'll couch it. Uh, I, I don't disagree, but I'll couch it in terms of you know, within the world of the story. The Federation does not seem to be in a rush to copy this spore tech, um, which I suspect may be a story oversight, but but we'll see how things um, how things end up. The notion of, you know, let's, let's cause another burn let's take away dilithium and kind of force the clean renewable spore stuff except for the fact that it you know killed all the spore dimension people which is something else that the story is completely i don't say ignoring but i think you know once again it's like boy these fossil fuels are terrible pete uh i can't wait to get a new car and electric's awful expensive so to get a you know and so on and so forth but i digress point being I, I like your theory that maybe the solution to defeating the Emerald Chain is to not blow up the Emerald Chain, but to take away all their dilithium and say, now we now we run on spores. And it would take them, obviously, longer to get from place to place. They don't pose the threat sitting on a fuel supply. Um, they do now. Um, and I think, so when you bring in the child, Sukal, uh, to this at the life expectancy of 
Kelpians, so he's approximately 125 years old. Unstable, has he yet gone through Baharai? I would imagine so. I mean, I don't, I don't know that that's the case. Yeah. So what does that mean in the emotionally fragile environment on top of this bomb planet? And and that's where I, I think, all right, so early on in this episode, they talk about the potential for another burn. The burn being this season-long mystery of what was it, how exactly did it happen, where did it come from, and now the potential ticking story clock of there could be or there is another one coming. So a reset button, maybe? And then, well, what survives it? The, the ship that doesn't have just that technology that's so dependent on it hey beep boop beep everybody's got the schematics now federation coming back emerald chain you limp back to andorian um uh, orion space there and and do your you know i know you're not all pirates anymore you, you do military exercises now i do think we're going to see in the next episode the resolution of Sukal on the planet and Burnham being separated from the ship. Uh, pardon me, Burnham's not separated from the ship. Seru and, and Culber. Um, although, I, you know what I'm saying, Burnham is, Burnham, while not on the planet, is en route faster than Seru and Culber is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. I would expect that for the season finale, everybody's back all together for the final climactic battle or whatever it might be. Also, given that Sukal's planet is this powder keg I would I would vote for it to be resolved next week and and not be hanging out there. Now that we've found out that retroactively it's been Sukal's planet has been this threat all season and for 125 years prior to this season, well let's wrap this puppy up next week. It's interesting that this holographic environment that so dominates the episode, this is the first time that our protagonists have really interacted in a hollow program. You know, we had discussed before and even theorized, okay, when Adira goes and plays the cello, you know, is that holographic programmable matter in some kind of hollow rec room that's been retrofitted into discovery? Uh, No mention whatsoever of hollow decks, a deck that is not hollow, but instead been hollowed out for some hollows. Um, and here, this environment, and I, I guess my biggest question is the rules of it. You know, we, we've seen hollow programs before, uh, but changing the participants who go into it and their appearance, and, and yes, it's explained in the episode, this is what would be more comfortable for uh, the, the protected uh, person inside this. But, you know, Saru, his heels touch the ground. Um, I don't know. I've, I've never seen anything with this change in, in 
trek in terms of holographic projection and program. And then when you have Burnham getting sucked into the sky and this fortress that appears and the, the scary thing that represents the fear, it, it's definitely among the most interesting hollow programs we've seen. Yeah, it's 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 a really uh, it, it's a novel approach to the holodeck gone bad storyline, which I feel like approached trope status um, in in Star Trek's past. Here, it's kind of completely reframed and feels anew. With that, let's go to hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Pete, we start looking at Twitter. A boldly go 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 or boldly ho ho ho. How did people vote? Pete, with the choice cloaking what now, got 10%. The second choice, green with envy, also got 10%. Fine hollow story, got 45%. And then Sakal's a metaphor for who, got 35%. Uh, some written responses we heard from Andre Yeager reclaiming the title of fastest gun in the West. Uh, that's at Dr. Polo 1983. Uh, they didn't even give the episode a part one title. Love the cliffhanger, though. Did the child actually cause the burn? How powerful is he? Can't wait to see what Osira is going to do with Disco. Going to be an interesting conclusion. Uh, we also heard from game, James the Sagacious. Uh, didn't see any of that coming. A Christmas cliffhanger. Was anyone else expecting Combadgy to appear? Um, <laughs> that, of course, is the Twitter for you know, Badgy, the beloved uh, Lower Decks character. Uh, we heard from Dennis. That's at Bono underscore Dio. I can't believe a child's grief caused the burn. We heard from Jackie Wolf, at Jackie Wolf. I can't shake the feeling that someone isn't making it out of the hollow program alive. Oh, no, Pete. Don't do that to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I had I not considered that. Any, any cost or death at, at the expense of our regulars? I mean, is is book somebody potentially? I mean, they they gave you concern for him this episode so pete you're surely not suggesting that a <laughs> middle-aged season-long in the credits male lead is going to be not making it into next season yellow ahem, alert. lorca ahem <laughs> uh pike yeah, so we'll see um I, I do know this pete i know that we've seen um swole doug jones and we've seen way more swole uh, Wilson Cruz uh, in preparation for season four and filming season four. So if somebody's not making it out of the hollow, it might be Sukal. Um, anyhow, moving on to Brett Desmo Williams. It's at BW Desmo on Twitter. Truly great modern version of a hollow deck on the Fritz story. Hated to see Disco in Osiris' hand, but I'm truly pumped for what comes next. We heard from Spider Ham Lincoln. That's at Tess LC139. This was an exciting fun and unfortunately somewhat predictable episode but just the stuff just with the stuff on the ship i didn't predict exactly how the ship would be taken but once osiris showed up you knew things wouldn't go well with tilly in charge and that's not to say that things would have been any different with anyone else in the mm -hmm. captain's chair which pete let me pause spider ham lincoln's words here i know there were some people uh, on twitter saying you know uh, it's proof that tilly is a terrible captain that she lost no, control not. of the ship and anybody uh, there would have been overrun like what uh star trek 2 that all but happened you know i mean i mean khan didn't take control of the enterprise but it was just as bad um see picard v borg 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, I mean, again, I think that I have preparedness concerns for Tilly, but when Tilly was in the chair this episode, I did not have leadership concerns. No, and the, um, and the Tilly stuff, you know, giving her her first con duty. Yes, she sat in the chair before she did the uh, training program uh, with Pike uh, in season two and the shadowing but you know to have the true stakes here you know cut off from your captain as acting first officer to to be the one here i mean obviously this is going to be the moment of growth this is going to be the way that she comes out of this if not promoted from ensign full-time number one um it is a among the best stuff of this episode uh, particularly the the chair uh, backstory and everything with that. Back to Spider-Ham Lincoln's words here. The random transformations of Burnham, Culber, and Saru seemed unnecessarily out of place, though it was cool to see Doug Jones as human Saru. The mystery surrounding the Dilithium planet and baby Saru is intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bravo. I am, I did not read that at the time. Yes, of course, Sukal is baby Saru. I get it. Uh, his name is, what's the, the, the Grogu that we could come up with? This is this <laughs> Shatsu. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Um, let's see. The mystery surrounding the Dilithium planet and baby Saru is intriguing and very much. Radu. <laughs> there you go. I'm very much looking forward to the remainder of the season. The previews for next week's episode look very promising. Last but not least, Pete from Boldly Going Wherever. That's at K-C-L-Y-L-E-1 on Twitter. Call it Trek, New Trek, Old Trek, No Trek. This was great TV. Amazing visuals, tension with Tilly in the chair, the hollow transformations. All of it was great. One of, if not the best show around right now. It's definitely not an episode you came in saying at the end of this story discovery is going to be taken captive and our crew is going to be scattered in three different locations. So the stakes are there. The, the chips have been pushed into the middle of the table and these last two episodes are the time to ante up. With that, Pete, let's check the email inbox. We heard from Dirk, the Mark Halian, who says, hello, Matt and Pete. This was a great episode with plenty of vintage Trek elements, such as visiting a planet, dealing with unexpected kooky realities on the planet, and what makes it special is that our heroes have to tackle a hologram program of which they have no control. I mean, welcome to Star Trek in the best possible way. Not to mention that Discovery's strength, meaning its stunning visuals, are best put to use in this type of world building. It's true that the cause of the burn turned out to be a bit underwhelming, but I never felt like this season revolved around the burn anyway. There have been plenty of wonderful character moments in other plot lines. It was the same for this outing. The world building within the hologram was impressive. Michael's conversation with Sukal in an effort to connect to, uh, to him and the crew, coordinating its efforts to deal with several problems simultaneously, were a delight to watch, and Book's ship flying through the debris was an action highlight of the hour. My only nitpick is the excessive last-word banter between Tilly and Osira. It's fine to play tough for a sentence or two, but a tough warning should be enough, instead of, a t- instead of teenage banter to see who can stick the last word in. It looked especially uh, bad, considering that Tilly was not even aware of Stamets and the engineering section being taken over while she is jabbing words with Osira. 
Looking forward to your commentary, Pete. That from Dirk the Markalian at Markalian Dirk on Twitter. It is fair criticism. It might have been a scene too many of the sparring, but it's really watchable. Like when Mary Wiseman gets to play, I guess we can call this tough Tilly or snarky Tilly, snarky, snarky Sylvia, maybe. It's funny. We, we never hear her first name anymore. She's, she's Tilly or Killy. Um, it, it's just too delicious to not use maybe a little bit more restraint um, might have uh, been the right balance. Well, Pete, we saw Tilly in the captain's chair. And of course, no stranger to command situations is our Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 11. They did throw me off, because this was not part 1 of a two-parter, or perhaps even a three-parter, we don't know. So that was a little disturbing at the end, that it obviously is a story to continue. Second nitpick is about a thing I thought of for a very long time. Why is this Sonequa Martin Green always whispering? I really get annoyed by it. Actually, my wife originally made a remark about it, and when we talked about how do you like Star Trek, etc., etc., and then she said, okay, I do like it, but... I don't like this actress Sonicra Martin-Green because her emotional scenes or a little bit emotional scenes are always in a whisper mode. And since my wife said that, I also see it. Actually, I felt it before, but I couldn't pinpoint it down. And if you see an interview with Sonicra, she is not like that at all. Uh, She is very enthusiastic and is not whispering at all and... Is this just in her way of acting or do the directors really want her to act like this? I think I really should watch something else from her than Star Trek to judge this better. Here is an example talking to Book. And Saru worries you. I'm not sure he can be objective. How he'll handle it if he has to make a hard call. A painful one. And that costs him. That's what it means to be a captain. He's gonna need you down there. No one ever answers me fine. I just hope they're enough. And another one talking to Tilly. Whenever Giorgio got into a tricky situation, she felt like all the different choices were mind-numbing. She would press on it with her thumb kind of stay in the moment, you know. And the first time she made me acting captain, when I sat down, I immediately fell for it. But all that was there was this little shiny spot where she had rubbed that burr into a death. And I've seen Saru touch the one here on Discovery. So, burr, dead, shiny spot, whatever. It's there for you. You belong in that chair, Tilly. 
A nice surprise was, of course, Colbert as Bajoran, Michael as Trill, and Saru as human. I think it was a very nice thing for Doc Jones to be without his prosthetics. And if you watch the Ready Room, you can see what he thought of that. And I think Tilly did quite a good job in being in command. Reminded me a bit of Killy, though. I found the story on the planet a little bit too surrealistic. Although I liked the model of MC Escher as a background, which is a Dutch artist, by the way. Okay, that was all for now. Time's up, although there were many other things to say. All the best for 2021 to all listeners of Fantastic Geek. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, Fred mentioned some of the uh, surrealism, perhaps influenced by the artist M.C. Escher. And I know Fred has uh, further thoughts that he shared with you. Yeah, he had written in as well with some pictures here. He said, the funny thing is his youngest son just designed a poster for his room two or three weeks ago. Uh, It arrived in the post a few days ago and was a M.C. Escher drawing combined with his son's personal graffiti symbol. What a coincidence. So he had put that up there and some different uh, side-by-side photos um, with that. And yeah, I, I think with the the hollow environment and the, you know, Escher-esque uh, influence of it, it's an interesting choice, particularly the not malfunctioning because of, you know, holodeck, but more so because of the decay, because of the time uh, that it's been there on uh, the Dilithium planet. Fred also noting uh, that, that the, you know, Tilly in the captain's chair, Tilly in command perhaps had shades of Killy. Uh, and I think that that, that's a great observation. I'm reminded back to, uh, not just the classic Trek Mirror Universe episode, but there's one where Kirk, Kirk gets split in two, you know, kind of like thoughtful but weak Kirk and angry but strong Kirk. Um, and just this notion in both that episode and the Mirror episode of, you know, kind of the duality of things and the gray area between and things of that sort. So I feel like um, Fred is picking up on some very Star Trek things that maybe they didn't dive deep into in this episode, but it's kind of part of that Star Trek aesthetic. I mean, how can having played Killy in the mirror universe. I mean, season one, she does that not influence for Tilly, what it would eventually be like to have command of a vessel. She needs to be able to summon that part, you know, not the, not the hair and the, the dominatrix outfit per se, but, but more of that attitude and I think that's important for her. You know, she tends to be so mousy. You think about when we met her and how terrified she was of Stamets and how close they've become and where she's able to summon this toughness within. I mean, it's a real good illustration of character arc across several seasons. Now, Pete, Fred mentioned the strange coincidence of M.C. Escher's influence in this episode and the poster from his son. He also gave us and all listeners uh, greetings for a a happy new year. 
Pete, maybe all these things are in combination. Is it possible that Fred is a time traveler, <laughs> comes from farther down the timeline than we thought, and he knows definitively uh, that 2021 will be a better year? He knew for sure that there'd be Escher-like stairs in this episode and perhaps suggested the art style to his son. Is Fred uh, the watcher from the Marvel Universe, and does he know all and see all? <laughs> Can it be worse than than 2020? Um, Pete, I think the Fred foretelling, it's definitely going to be better. So I know that while we have other things to talk about on the Pop Culture Podcast feed in the coming days, and, and indeed for what's left of 2020, uh, I know that the next Star Trek podcast will be in the new year. So Fred's uh, wishes certainly well received and reciprocated. Absolutely. And while this will be the first year uh, in the history of Fantastic Geek, that we will not top the previous year in the number of podcast episodes. That's only because our record last year of 185, uh, we're going to cross the 100 mark with this episode. Uh, so, yeah, the, the center must hold. <laughs> Indeed. And Pete, how could people be in touch with you to talk Perhaps Star Trek predictions to talk thoughts about Mandalorian season two, uh, WandaVision, Wonder Woman. How can they be in touch, Pete? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E -E 11,723 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a PH, all one word, like it today. I mentioned the lineup in the next uh, eight days previously. Again, Mandalorian Season 2 wrap-up, WandaVision Season Preview, Wonder Woman Review, and of course, back here same time next week, on Saturday, January 2nd, in the future, in 2021, to talk Discovery Episode 312. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. You woke the monster! <laughs> <laughs>